You're listening to the Great Synth 68 Podcast, the dedicated Birmingham City women's audio show bringing you the latest news and interviews from the club. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Great Synth 68 Podcast. This is episode 49. I am joined by special guests this week, but as usual, I've got one of my co-hosts with me, and that's Chris Pugh. Chris, how are you this week? Um, well, thank you, Craig. Yourself? Yeah, I've not been too bad, thank you. My first guest today is Molly Hudson, a women's football reporter for The Times and has also done work for the BBC and The Independent. Her achievements are made all the more remarkable by the fact that she is still studying journalism at Staffordshire University. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Molly. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. And our other guest is Kieran Tavum, a freelance women's football writer, former host of Women's Soccer Zone, and more recently, the host of Football Spotlight. We'll get into some of those in a bit, Kieran, but for the time being, it's a pleasure to have someone who's been around the women's football scene for many years on the show. And it's a pleasure to be on, Craig, on a podcast that is starting to make a name for itself in the industry. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, and that's very kind of you to say. We'll chat to our guests shortly, but first we'll round up the Bristol City game, which took place last Sunday. It was a 1-0 defeat to Bristol City. Tanya Oxtoby's side once again overcoming the odds and putting in a great performance and the win. It was a goal by Gemma Evans in the first half, a, a header. From what I could see from the highlights, Chris, it was a, that the header was like kind of scuffed and it kind of like backspinned off the ground and into the net. It was actually a really well-worked set piece in the build-up. It was kind of it reminded me a bit like the the Ellen White one where she did you know the one the, the famous Notts where County she was one? At Notts County, yeah, that's it, yeah fine to take it a couple of times and then and then whip the cross in apologies if i've got this wrong i think it was hayley lad who was tracking Gemma evans and she's just got ahead of her like you say she's she's got her head onto the ball and and it's diverted past hannah it's a scruffy finish but you know they, they won't care one jot about that the the free kick routine was what outdid us so you know that they'll take that definitely that got them really where they wanted to be. They they, they were one nil up and and they could sit back and and be tight and defensive and 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 try and hold on to that. Yeah, absolutely. And but to be fair to them, they didn't really have to do too much because we weren't really pressing them at all in the in the at least the first half. We we didn't look like we were going to be able to put two passes together, let alone get a shot across. Chris, it was a bit of a bit of a below performance uh, from the team overall. It was, um, you know, and and I don't think us saying that will will do anything that they don't already know. I'm sure, I'm sure they know that, that the performance was n- not to the levels that they've put in this season. But do you know what? I think it, it showed, it signalled the... Um, I, I put this on Twitter, um, the humanity of football, the week that they've gone through. You know, it, It's predominantly a young squad. Um, it's a young squad that most of them have come through with Mark um have believed in the plan that mark has has put ahead for them and they wake up on wednesday the morning of a of a continental cup quarter final to hear that the news that he he will be leaving that that must have hit them hard and then obviously what happened at arsenal being one nil up with 6 minutes to go and losing would have absolutely crushed them um and honestly you know it's funny cuz you you watch the game and you think, my God, my goodness, this you know this this isn't the blue side that we've seen all season. But actually, when you look back on it and you think four days ago they, you know that they went through an absolute horrible day, and it's understandable that that a lot of those girls I think would still have been a little bit shell shocked, um, probably emotionally not really in the right frame of mind to take on a an improving Bristol side, you know, a Bristol side that are so well organised this season. We've played them three times this season um, and only an EFA worldie has, has has got through them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, some, we, we talk about um, the professionalism of the game and stuff, but it's not always necessarily uh, physical tiredness. They have played three games in a, in a week, but that's not, that's not the only thing. They've been through something that we, we we consider players to be like untouchable at times, like in the fact that they're oh they can't possibly have any any like um issues off the field because they're 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 paid to do what they're doing. And that's never yeah. the case. There's more to that. There's things that, as you say, Mark's left and they've they've heard the news. 
and even if they were, they heard the news sooner, it's still it's still a massive change in their life. They've had they've had Mark in the place for two and a half years, and now he's going, and it 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 it, it takes a toll on people. Any anyone who's worked with anyone they've liked and they've moved on to another job, you you miss them, and it and it takes a while to adjust to someone else being in there, and it's going to be the same case at Blues. And well, so, some, someone like Keris would have known him for 10 plus years. Absolutely. You know, she's been at Blues as long as he's been at Blues, you know, not, not as manager, but in and around the club. It is, I think, I think you're right. There's, there's a, there's sort of an expectation that, you know, footballers are robots and they just, they turn up on the day and they, and they perform to their best of their ability and then they go home and there's nothing going on in their personal lives. It must have been a, a really difficult week. You know, we, we were, absolutely gutted as, as supporters you know and still on sun on sunday you you probably knew it was it was going to be mark's last game so you know uh, and if the players knew it was going to be mark's last game as well you know their their emotions would have would have been all over the place and i think you know as difficult as it is and you know some people might like you say some people might say you know that they want to be professional their head needs to be on the task of playing the game but actually you know I, I wouldn't um I, I wouldn't be surprised my head would probably be all over the place as well if I was one of those players absolutely and as you said earlier they've played a league cup game just three or four days before and how close they got to a, a memorable win over Arsenal a depleted Arsenal nonetheless but still it would be in a massive result if we were to beat Arsenal at Boreham Wood and the emotions of, of of losing it in the last few minutes is 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 obviously going to take another toll, and I think we're going to come into it later about uh, statistics in football and how they're not always accurate, shall we say? We got seventy one percent of possession according to this, which is probably true because we 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 usually have more possession. That's what nowadays. we like to do, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it says we had twelve shots, and I can't remember twelve shots. I know it says that we were only two on target, but twelve seems a bit much. Given the given how the game played out, yeah, I think it, it it might be shots from distance that that were nowhere near troubling the goal. Um, you know, but like you say, we were never on it at all. Um, you know, we're at no point in the game did we look like the side that we've we've become used to seeing over the last six months. I, I can't imagine what that coach journey home must have been like on on Wednesday night after the Arsenal game. And I can't imagine any of those players went to sleep on Wednesday night, you know, it, with their minds in a very good place at all. Um, you know, and, and it's only three days later. You get, like I said again, really not the side you want to play Bristol at the moment. Um, you know, a, a team who are resolute and and are really hard working, very well organised under Tanya Ox to be, and uh, and that's what we got. The result of of all of those things put together is what is what happened on Sunday. Also, following the game, I got to speak to manager Mark Skinner, which probably will be the final time we speak to him as Birmingham City manager. He spoke about his thoughts on the Bristol City game as well as his time as Birmingham City manager. Mark, it probably wasn't our best game. It wasn't as bad, but it was kind of on the same sort of level as the game against Sunderland this time last year. I thought it was a pretty pretty poor performance really overall. Really, really poor performance and one they have to own because you own the nice performances and they have to own the, the poor performances. But we need to do some work on this pitch because it's really sticky, muddy, doesn't warrant itself to us wanting to play football and if they want us to play football at home, it's ridiculous. So look, no excuses, all credit to Bristol. Uh, we joke about it, Mark, that you love clean sheets more, almost as much as Laura and Sadie. Uh, but these fans must also rank quite highly after such a long time in Blues in various capacities. Yeah, look, I've been, to, been at the club for 14 years and I love this club. I know that people might think that I don't love this club, but absolutely, I've given a hell of, I've given a massive part, chunk of my life to it to do everything when I weren't paid for it. I absolutely adore it, and it'll go from strength to strength, and it's got to ensure it, the, the players are got to ensure they can keep doing the things that they're doing, and then they'll find success along the way. So I'm sure that the next part of the, the chapter will be a, a very bright one too. What have you personally learned the most since taking over in 2016? I've learned a lot about myself, and... I've learned that with the right passion and commitment and the right relationships, you can take a team on a journey. And that would be the best thing for me because when you affect human beings, like I can take a leave football, mate, believe it or not. But when you affect people, 
when I'm sat on my, my deathbed, I'll look back on the people I've affected and hopefully wherever I go, whatever happens in the future, a team can understand how I've affected them and that means the most to me. You've spoken a lot about the Blues project since you became manager. Will it feel strange to leave it before the project is fully completed? 100%. Yeah, I, I won't lie, it will feel strange. Once everything's finalised and sorted and so on, people will understand the reasons, they'll understand. They might not like them, but they'll understand them. And I don't need them to understand them or like them. That's a decision to be making in everyone's lives. So, yeah, I'm disappointed I won't be able to see the project date, but why can't I watch it from afar? If the girls don't go on to achieve something because I'm not here, then it was never truly real anyway. One person doesn't bring it together. They have to realise that they're the key. I said to them in the training room before the game, how many goals have I scored this year? How many interceptions have I made? How many penalties have I stopped? I've done none of that. They've done it all. So they've got to realise it wasn't me, it was them. And if they don't do that, then they won't be successful. If they do do that, then they'll continue to be successful. So it's all in their hands. Getting rid of the underdog label was something a big thing that you wanted to do when you came in with the squad. Beating Liverpool away, drawing to Chelsea, beating Man City, all big moments and a sign of that mentality, don't you agree? Yeah, and I would hope that people don't see Birmingham as the underdog. Look, the result will be a dent to egos. But if Birmingham fans are starting to talk about egos, then they're in the wrong place. You have to work hard at everything that you do. Otherwise, you take your eye off it for a second and a, that, that's a really poor goal today. And we can't concede that. They've not really done much more, Bristol. And fair play to them for doing that. You have to stay focused and I've got to make sure that these girls do that for the next person, whoever that may be. There are people behind the scenes that help you do what you do as manager. A, a, a quick word for them, everyone at the club? The biggest word for them. I'm one person. I am what I am. I have my vision of where I want to do things, but my staff are wonderful. And without them, it's not just me. Like People look at me going, but they're, they're the key cogs in what happens. And the people behind the scenes, on, from match, match day volunteers to anyone that's paid full-time by the club, it isn't a one-person job, it's a whole team collective. You know we play as a team on the field, and that's what gets us success. So it's the team off the field that makes success. So yes, thank you very much for asking that question, because sometimes it's, it's not reminded. And I want to thank them more than anyone else for, if anything, keeping me sane. Um, and their sage has been the best thing. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful team, and someone who's going to be a very, very lucky person. And as someone who was inspired by The Greatest Showman, I've, I've been inspired by how much you've you put on the show since you came as manager and I, I appreciate everything that you've done for this club. I appreciate your energy and your commitment to making us better because believe it or not, you're trying to put Birmingham out there. There aren't many people doing that and you give up your time to do that. So from the bottom of my heart and from the, the, my team's heart, thank you very much because your exposure gives them, you know, they all listen to it and it gives them something to, to kind of think about, talk about. And, and so thank you very much. And, and obviously Kaz and Chris for all their input as well. So it's really, really more. long, mate, continuing. And you keep supporting this team because they can do wonderful things. Looking ahead then, Chris, it doesn't get any much easier, really. We've got Chelsea next, which is... Oh, joy. A Chelsea team that have only conceded goals against Arsenal. And even Arsenal couldn't, couldn't stand up to them this, this past week. So it's going to be a tough one, Chris. And it's going to be a, a match where we might have a new manager in place. We might not. It depends on what happens. But it's going to be a tough test, Chris. And I, it's 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 tough to see past Chelsea at the moment. I mean, it's tough to see past Chelsea at the moment for the league title. They'll be oozing with confidence um, in every game they go into at the moment. They're back scoring goals. They've got you know players playing well. They've got players like Frank Kirby who are coming back from injury and back into the fold. Um, so yeah, they're. They are looking the form side in the in the league at the moment. Um, Any time you play Chelsea is going to be a really difficult game. So you hope over the next couple of weeks that the management situation can be sorted out um, one way or the other. Hopefully Ellen White's not too far away from recovering now. She's obviously gone away for the England training camp. So that's it's another sign of progress towards her full fitness. And uh, looking at the Chelsea team, obviously there's a couple of familiar faces there. Kaz Carney, a le club legend, as we've once, as we've said many times. Jess Carter, who left in the summer, and and Katrin Berger, who joined them recently this winter, this winter transfer window. Chris, do you think Anne's going to get a game, or do you think they're they're, they're going to keep keep not playing her at the moment? I don't think it's any exaggeration to say I'm absolutely baffled as to what's gone on with Anne. <laughs> Obviously, 
I understand that she's out of contract and obviously Chelsea wanted to get the deal done. But, you know, I don't mean this disrespectfully to to Lindahl or Telford. Annie's, Annie's a far superior goalkeeper to both of those. Um, and I'm all for loyalty. Um, you know, and I, you know, in, in a funny kind of way, I, I appreciate and I understand what Emma Hayes is doing, you know, saying saying to Lindahl and Telford, you're the ones who started the season, so I'll, I'll stick with you. But they've got one of the best goalkeepers in the world doing nothing at the moment. It's a very, very strange situation. Emma Hayes has came out and said no keepers leaving in this transfer window, which kind of leaves... If you've got four keepers and Lizzie Durack can't even get a game, it, 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 it's f- really harsh on her, isn't it? That she can't even go on Lizzie. Yeah. Absolutely. You feel desperate if you're Lizzie Durack three at the club ahead of her. She's, you know, her chances are going to be absolutely minimal at the moment. Yeah, I mean, they were minimal before the, before Anne came yeah, in. And it's, it's, it's just, course. injuries can happen, but I don't, I can't see free injuries happening in the space of the next, next seven games or whatever it is left. No. It's, it, it's unfair and some, they probably should loan her out, but it's, uh, if Emma Hayes said no one's going, no one's going. So it's an interesting one. Predictions then, Chris, I don't think it's going to be very favourable, this result, but what do you think Ooh. the score is going to be? It's difficult asking, you know, we obviously there's two, there's two weeks until the game. There's there's the England-Qatar camp before the game. Assuming we've got a manager in place who have had time to work with, with the players that we've got left, obviously, you know, that a manager could come in tomorrow and they won't have some of the players because they'll be away on, on the various international camps that are going on. So, yeah, it'll be really difficult. Um, I think we've got to go there and, and try and try and play the way we have done. You know, we went there and, and we're very close to getting a draw last season, back in the last season. But I think um, I think I'll go 2-0 Chelsea for this one. And the goal scorer, Chris? <sighs> Um, because I absolutely slated her at the start of the season for not scoring, Kirby's bound to get one, and Chloe on Twitter will no doubt rub it in my face. I think it's going to be 2 1 to Chelsea, and I'm going to say G with the goal. And now we'll move on to the main feature of this week's show, which is our talk about the role of the media in women's football. As we mentioned, we are joined by Kieran Tavum and Molly Hudson. Molly, could you quickly run us through what you do on a typical match day, please? Um, obviously, in the week ahead, we will plan the game and we'll decide where I'm actually going to go. And that'll, often that's, that'll be the death telling me to go to a certain game or if there isn't a standout fixture, I will try and go to the one that Truthfully, honestly, is probably the closest to me that I can get it because, again, you know, we get a certain fee for a column, but that necessarily doesn't cover expenses or whatever. So, obviously, we try and get to a game as much as we can. Now, let's say, for example, Arsenal-Chelsea, which I attended at the weekend. Um, If you can get to that, you get there quite early, as early as you can, you know, two hours, hour and a half ahead. Gets to an hour before kickoff, obviously, collect your press pass. in the ground, give the give the desk a ring and they'll tell you what the space is looking like in the, the newspaper at the time because obviously that's affected by any other sporting events that might be going on on that day. So they'll give you a word count and they'll tell you whether they want teams or ratings or anything like that. And um, then also tell you whether they want it on the whistle or whether they just want a quote to be right. So then watch the game, obviously start your stopwatch, which often forgets to do. Um uh, make make as many notes as you can, and then at half time, kind of evaluate, see where we're at, um, and then if we can get to full time, if you've got something on the whistle, of course, get that done straight away. But then often it's a quote rewrite because obviously anyone can write a match report, but what everyone is really interested in is the personalities and what the people have got to say. So speak to as many people as we can, managers, players, um, and as Kieran said earlier, sometimes that can be suggested for you or you get to pick which is which is nice sometimes um obviously get your rewrite done as quick as you can but then it can often change very quickly you know news is constantly happening so just like at the weekend when the Charlton incident happened I was still in London writing up my quotes rewrite and I had to bring the desk to say what happened and then they wanted a separate news story on that 
but obviously that then affects my word count for the report that I've done because there's only, still only so much room in the paper despite the fact that different news is breaking. So then that can sometimes mean a further rewrite and extra things like that. But yeah, it's definitely it's a, it's a constant match day experience. It's constantly changing and you can't predict it, but that's what makes it fun. Due to some technical difficulties, we lost a part of the call, uh, part of the discussion about women's football and the media. So this is going to sound a bit weird as it goes into it, but as, as it goes on, it will become clearer. So this first bit is Molly talking about stigma that the national media might uh, receive coming into the women's game in recent years. There's a little bit of stigma even between media organisations, the idea of the national media coming in and kind of making the game something that it isn't. But I think what is important, we, we all sit there and when myself or Susie or Katie or when Kieran does stuff for something like somebody like The Independent, everyone praises it and everyone's really delighted that we've, we've got women's football coverage in a national newspaper or national website or whatever. But you've also got to remember that we aren't individual journalists. We have a desk and we have people that tell us what they want. And that isn't always a match support. It can be investigative or it can be, you know, it's not always the nice things. It can be like this racism story, you know, things like that are always going to get more coverage. But that's because the way women's football fans see the game is the way women's football media has always covered it. Whereas my boss and everyone else's boss is going to cover it as if it's football. They don't know this, what we're talking about. They don't know this at all. They just assume that women's football is covered in the same way that any other sport is. So I think that's really important to remember that we have jobs and we they have expectations of us as journalists and we have to deliver that or we wouldn't have jobs. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, and when we're talking about transfers, um, the constant and moving nature of women's football has meant transfers are often short, typically a year or 18 months in length for the most. But with the game becoming more professional, with the will we see players less likely to move in order to gain a, the security of staying at a club uh, with an established wage? What do you think, Molly? I think if you're looking at some of the bigger teams, I think they are more likely to stay because, you know, there's people, say Chelsea and Frank Kirby, for example, unless she gets an offer from somewhere like a Leon or a Wolfsburg that is at the moment a step ahead of Chelsea, why would she need to go anywhere else, particularly in England? So there's no reason why she couldn't be, you know, a club legend and be there for years and years. But then you've got to look at some of the teams that are lower down and, you know, your Yeovils or your, well, I was going to say your Bristol, but that isn't the case this season. But if you look at clubs like that, that maybe don't have the money to pay those wages, then of course it's only natural for a player if they're doing well and they get an offer, of course they're going to move because, you know, it's only natural if, if they can get better money elsewhere, just as you just as you see in the men's game. So w- would you say that, if you are a player at a Yeovil or an Everton who who is standing out in those teams, do you think they would rather have 12 to 18 month contracts than than the financial security of a three-year contract? I think it's hard because say somebody at Yeovil had a three-year contract, that's still not really financially secure because of the wages that they'd be earning without going yeah. into figures. It's, you know, if you can have a 12-month contract and, you know, Lee Birch rings you up and goes, I need you to do a job for me for 12 months. And I've spoken to him and he said, you know, they can use Yeovil as a platform. That's fine because it benefits both the club and it benefits the player. You know, if you can impress in the Women's Deep League, then there will be offers from bigger teams. And I think that is something that Yeovil as a club are accepting of because, you know, it works well for them. Like Megan Walsh, for example, it's been amazing for them, you know, and... If she does move on at some point, which maybe she will, maybe she won't, she's done a job for Yeovil. She's earned them points, you know, they wouldn't be where they were if it wasn't for her. But also it's helped her and put her in a spotlight, the Women's Super League. And, you know, if she then goes on to earn more wages elsewhere, then that's perfectly fine. I don't think there's, there's not the kind of you can't play for this club and then play for this club like there is in the men's league. I think mm. it's a lot more open and... Again, maybe that's something that will change because I know in my mention, certainly, and I think in Rich's, there's been a bit of kind of the Man United fans saying, why is there no rivalry? Why is there no segregation? And all that kind of thing. But I think, you know, it's not such a big deal and players can, you know, go to one club, go to another club. And I don't think it makes as much difference to a lot of the women's football fans as it does in the men's game. They might need segregation down Blues next year, those Man United fans, if they're... 
if they're keen on it. <laughs> It'll be a good atmosphere, Chris, no, nonetheless. <laughs> I can imagine it will be. We'll move on now to, to talk a little bit about your career so far then. And uh, Kieran, how did you get into covering women's football? This is a very, very simple answer that I give to everyone, Craig. It's uh, meeting Kelly Smith 10 years ago. 10 years ago this month, actually, I was working as a regional journalist in Watford, which is my hometown. And Watford also happens to be Kelly's hometown. And for a mutual contact, a mutual friend, I actually interviewed Kelly uh, 10 years ago in her living room in Welling Garden City. She doesn't live there anymore. And, you know, Kelly at the time was considered to be not only England's best player, but one of the best players in the world. And when you get the opportunity to meet one of the best players in the world in their living room, and they're so humble and very modest about what they do, it's very difficult not to be kind of, not overwhelmed, but I was very drawn to that. I'd watched women's football before. I'd seen bits of the World Cup in 2007 in China. But it wasn't until I met Kelly and kind of talked to her about her career to that to that date and her ambitions and and really what she wanted to achieve that I kind of first started following her career. So I watched the Euros in 2009 in Finland and then went to a few games. One of the first England games I went to in person, I think, was in 2010. It was a World Cup playoff against Switzerland in Shrewsbury. And I traveled down with Kelly's family in a minibus. So that was kind of where it started. And then I really kind of started to cover the game in terms of blogging and uh, in about 2011 and, and kind of took it from there. But yeah, I, I definitely put it down to Kelly. Uh, I still have a very, very good relationship with Kelly to this day. I still think she's one of the greatest ever players to play the game, but um, she's definitely the reason for me getting into the football. Absolutely, and that's uh, more than more than adequate reason to do, get into, involved in women's sport. Uh, as you say, meeting one of one of the best English players, if not one of the best in the world, as you say. The Women's Soccer Zone for many years was a great resource as a website and podcast. You must be proud of how people embraced it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know when I started it in 2013, I think we were the first dedicated women's football podcast certainly in the UK. And I realised that the opportunities that we had in terms of access to players because we were so unique eventually meant that we would have to start a website because it, it meant, you know, we could broaden out a little bit more, get other people involved as well. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to do when I started the website was to get a lot more female writers on board. I'm a big believer in getting more female journalists in the press box and getting more female journalists involved in the sport. So my staff, if you like, I don't like to call them staff because they weren't paid, but the, the writers that I had, I think the vast majority of them out of the group were female. Um, and I was proud of that. But I think the biggest achievement that we had was the guide that we did for the Euros in 2017. We had a really good team of writers from across Europe. We had writers from Australia and America that contributed as well. Um, and I think we put a really comprehensive, insightful guide together that we had people from all over Europe and the world download and a lot of good feedback saying that it was even better than UEFA's official guide. So, you know, we were really pleased with what we were able to do. The access to players was great. We told some really good stories of players that didn't necessarily have the platform to be able to do that when we started. Uh, and I'm glad that it was it was useful to people. And I'm glad that you know, people listened to podcasts and, and visited the website. It just got to a point where it ran its course. You know, it's very, very time consuming. You will know from running your podcast that it is not as simple as just recording in an evening and that's it. There's a lot of work and planning and editing and production that goes into a podcast. And uh, I respect you guys for doing what you do because I know firsthand how much work goes into it. Uh, you started up a new podcast series within the last year, interviewing players, and it's been a great and of a great success, at least from the outside looking in. Can we expect more from the football spotlight in the future, and perhaps a hint of someone who might be appearing in in future series? <laughs> it's very much something that I'm going to do on the side, as and when I have time. Something a bit of fun. Uh, I don't plan to to make it a regular thing. I've been working on a project for the last few months that I'm hoping I'll be able to talk about in due course, um, which has kind of taken me away from it. But um, now that project is is coming to an end, my hope is to be able to to do a few football spotlight interviews. But, um, you know, there's now podcasts like yours, mate, so there's not as much need for it. So um, 
we will see but uh definitely plan to do a few more but how long it goes on for we'll have to we'll have to wait and see molly how did you get involved in covering women's football yourself I don't quite have the uh, glamorous story of Kelly Smith, as uh, Kieran does. But um, it's a bit of a weird one that I suppose could be looked at as sexism, but I'm going to put a positive spin on it. I know the Times were after a women's football column, which is uh, maybe some of the people on Twitter may have seen it. It's just a small roundup that we do each week. It's like performance of the week, goal of the week, villain of the week. And we tend to pick like a team of the week, stuff like that. About 250 words, um, and that goes in the game section on a Monday morning in the Times, and it also goes online. And there's an agency basically that creates those content. They also do them for, I think, the Championship League One and League Two called Wardle's Agency. Purely by coincidence, one of the people that created the Wardle's Agency, Ian Whittle, did a guest lecture at my uni and is now actually a lecturer there. And he was on the lookout for people, um, and my course leader picked myself because I was a girl and there wasn't that many well there was no other girls on the course and because of that um he said you know do you, do you follow women's football and do you, are you interested because the times have kind of come to us with this proposition and I wouldn't say I was an avid fan of women's football I watched it you know I watched tuned into the world cup of course watched the occasional women's super league game but as a young student journalist I was in year one you know I've had experience but not on a national on a national scale I've done things for regional papers and blogs and websites and podcasts but nothing to the scale of you know the times and I heard the times and I said yeah of course I'll take it what you need me to do it's definitely kind of grown from there I mean we started off with that column and I've been really 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 lucky with the desk and the trust that they've given me and the guidance that they've given me because as I said earlier when I was talking about the match day experience you can't recreate the, the process of working for a national newspaper. You can't recreate that. The, you know, the ringing the desk, the communicating ideas constantly throughout the week, the planning. You just, you can't recreate that. And I think it's certainly something that took a bit of adjusting for me, but I was really lucky to have people that have been in the industry for years and that have really helped me. And from that, as I say, I've been lucky enough to kind of, we now do sort of like an 800 word feature every Saturday. And that's more featurey and getting the chance to do the stories because I know when I first, spoke to the editors there, that they don't want to just do token content. I think that's really important. We don't just want to do a match report every week for the sake of doing a match report. It's about it's about finding the stories. It's about finding the stories behind the players and their experiences and their personalities, both on the pitch and off the pitch, because that's something there isn't a lot of. And, you know, anybody can write a match report, but to find that story, and part of that is investigative journalism, that's something that not everyone can offer. And hopefully... You know, we're able to do that on a national stage. Yeah, absolutely. The likes um, of you, yourself, of course, and Katie Wyatt and uh, Susie Rack, they're all doing great jobs in that sort of field, getting some more stories behind the game and such. And that's uh, it's, it's great to see. And as we've mentioned previously, you've worked for The Times, of course, uh, the BBC and The Independent. It's not bad for someone so young, is it? And I guess it just goes to show what an excellent job you've done. I know you, you you might be modest and not say you've done a good job, but we can say you've done a good job. To become the Times go-to reporter for women's football, that must feel like a, like a dream. Of course. I think, you know, and there's a lot of... I know when I first started both my college course, because I went to college and did print journalism before I started at uni, and everyone kind of tells me that newspapers are on, on the death, essentially. And it's something that I've always wanted to do growing up. I always wanted to write for a newspaper. And I mean, the Times isn't a bad place to go and do that. So I think that's always what I've wanted to do. Of course, there are elements of it that are turning into online and everything. But, you know, print isn't dead yet. And I'll be the first to kind of hopefully drag it into the future. What have you enjoyed the most about covering women's football so far? The Women's FA Cup final last year, just reporting at Wembley. I mean, that's just an incredible experience. You know, as you say, I'm still a student. I would never have dreamed that I'd have all the opportunities that I've had, the people I've spoken to, and just, you know, every match day, just to be involved in that was an incredible experience. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's hard to top Wembley. Moving on now to the differences between media in the men's game and the women's. We briefly touched on it earlier on. In particular, how it's uh, accepted that journalists break stories in the men's game every day, and yet there isn't that acceptance in the women's game. Kieran, I think you've got uh, a lot to say on this subject. So um, in terms of the way, I guess, fans see it, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Chris first for this. In terms of the fans, Chris, there's, a, there's kind of a juxtaposition between the way that 
the game is quite open. The fans get to see their players after games. They get to meet their heroes. They get to get photos. But there's that um, opposition with the idea that stories get, can get out there now and that, that fans can get a bit um, annoyed, I guess, is the word, about the stories getting broken about their club when they feel like uh, maybe it's like a betrayal, but it's not really, is it, Chris? It's kind of something that's commonly accepted in the men's game. Yeah, I, I mean, commonly accept, it's commonly accepted in the men's game, but I still don't, I, I don't think people like it. I'm a Birmingham fan, men's and women's club. If, if a newspaper come out with a with a really good a really big story tomorrow that Leicester or someone were, were going to sign Chay Adams for 15 million pound I wouldn't be particularly happy about it but you know it's it is what it is and uh, but there is that acceptance that it happens and 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 people will talk about will talk about your club for good or bad and this is a Birmingham podcast we're currently fourth in the table we're a big side in this division now and, and people are going to talk about us if we do well. You know, our manager's going to be spoke about, our, our star players are going to be spoke about and that that's where we are. That's that's the reality of, of, of Birmingham's situation at the moment and, uh, and I think people have got to come to terms with the fact that it's Kieran's job and it's Molly's job and, and everybody else's job that, you know, in, in journalism to to get these stories and bigging up the word of Birmingham, really, if nothing else. You know, I mean, Mark's left to join Orlando. It, it's obviously gutting for Blues, but, you know, Birmingham's out there in, in the news now. And it is, it's a difficult one. And like I said, the older generation of, of women's supporters to come to terms with because, you know, they they got their news from the players and manager. You know, that, that was the reality. Uh, and now it's in newspapers and things like that. It's it's a different world It's and it's grown so so quickly you know the the likes of Molly and and Katie have have really come into it in the last couple of years it's testament to their jobs really to the jobs they've done and and Kieran over the last 5 years we're in the news so much now you know and and people want to hear about what's going on in the women's game yeah absolutely Kieran um so obviously you 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 were in the um i guess in the crosshairs of the fans i guess cuz cuz you were involved in um in, in in the breaking story of them um, to do with Mark, uh, could you uh, offer a bit of insight into that and how and how important it is for journalists to be able to get stories out like this and, and how thorough they put put the work in before they release stories like this? You know, there's never anything personal and there's never any malice in a in a story that that's put together. I think you know the the reality is is that reporting is is the exact word that needs to be kind of highlighted. It's it's reporting. It's it's doing that. That kind of investigating, it's trying to use your sources to the to the best of your ability, and uh, I've covered it already. You know, one of the things that I'm really big on, and, and I'd recommend it to anyone that's looking to go into journalism, to you guys, if you have an interest in kind of moving this podcast forward, is it's networking. It's getting yourself out there, and it's meeting people, and it's making sure that you are building those relationships because ultimately, it's those people that will possibly verify or. or be able to kind of confirm a story that, that you have and, and that's how it was with Mark you know we got wind of the possibility that he might be going to Orlando and it was four or five days of speaking to sources both in the United States and the United Kingdom trying to verify that story we did not put that story out from the first source that we heard we wanted to make sure that it was absolutely watertight and concrete that he was had agreed to go to Orlando before we put that story out and I've already said it you know I acknowledge that the timing of the story wasn't the best and I acknowledge that people wouldn't have been happy with waking up on that Wednesday morning but I can't apologize for it you know that's the the nature of the job that we're in 10 minutes after the story went out on Equalizer Soccer's website it was on another website so there was clearly another journalist who knew about the story as well and that was a journalist that was actually based in Orlando so it's different now without a doubt when I started out back in what 2011 blogging in 2011 2012 it was easy for me to be able to just directly contact players on social media saying I write a blog I'd be interested in interviewing you now there were no press officers at this stage there was very little media interest so it was very easy for me to get interviews with players just through arranging through social media and it may be just a phone interview it may have been just sending them an email with some questions. The game has developed and the game has moved on. And unfortunately, with that, 
so does the media landscape. And with the media landscape changing and with the media landscape moving forward, it is going to be closer to the men's game. I don't think we'll see it being the men's game for a long time. We're not going to switch on Sky Sports News, for example, and see reporters talking about the latest moves or transfer rumours at Arsenal women or Birmingham women. But we are now going to see so-and-so is being linked with this club, a manager is being linked with another club, a, a one a club is looking at potentially firing their manager. It is unfortunately going to happen. And I'm with Chris with what he said, you know, the more old school fans that have been involved in the game for a long time are not necessarily going to be happy with that. And, and you know, look, I'm, I've mentioned it already. I've had to adjust too. I'm one of those old school people as well. I started out as a fan of the game back in 2009 and I've seen it change and I've had to adjust my approach to the way that I that I speak in the in, in the media. You know, I've had to change the way that I maybe communicate with certain people. There are people who maybe I had relationships with six, five or six years ago who are a little bit more guarded because they don't necessarily want stories to get out. So it's it has changed a lot. Some people will say it probably hasn't changed for the better, but if we want a more professional women's game then there is going to be more interest, there's going to be more scrutiny, and there's going to be more stories that come out. Absolutely. And um, another difference that I see between the media in the men's game and the women's game is statistics is one of the big ones. The men's game have, has an abundance of stats to draw through, but and until the eve of the Women's Super League or perhaps the Women's Premier League, it's incredibly hard to get stats on things like goal scorers and appearances, something that helps solidify legacies of the game and allows fans to compare eras and create a healthy debate. Journalists, too, rely on stats to give a better picture to the fans of the historic nature of a club or a competition. Does it annoy you, Molly, that stats have been so hard to come by, and even when you find them, they can be often be wrong? It's incredibly irritating because that's something that sports desks don't realise. I think it's certainly something that the Times have realised since I started. That they can ask for something that seems very, very simple and would easily be found with a quick Google search in the men's game. And in the women's game, it's really, really, really difficult and on impossible to find. And it is irritating. And, you know, I know there's only so much that can be done for what has gone because it's gone. But hopefully now there are people that are recording these kind of things and it will improve. It's, it's like anything in the women's game. It's going to take time to develop and it's certainly going to take time to get up to the standard of the men's game. But I know personally, a lot of us journalists absolutely love it when the Optostats come in the inbox every week. That's definitely something that has improved and it's been really helpful for us, particularly because one of the sections in my column is stat of the day and it's something that we did used to really struggle with. I, I was doing an article the other day, for example, on England players and they're the most capped England players. Now, obviously, we know who the most capped player is, but we was looking at, I think, the desk wanted top five or top ten and the lists online were just absolutely baffling. There was all different numbers all kinds of incorrect things going on. So then I contacted the FA, who then took a very long time to reply, but did eventually give me the correct list, but then could only give me so much of the correct list. I think they could give me like the top seven or something. So it's just, you know, even the FA don't have these kind of stats. And, you know, that, that says it all really, doesn't it? Kieran, has it always been this way? And is, is it the case that because it wasn't professional, Clubs were more careless about leaving paper around, throwing it away. Is it stuff like that that's led to this sort of uh, difficulty keeping stats in one place? <laughs> yeah, it's better now than it used to be. Believe me, if you speak to someone like Jen O'Neill, who has been covering the game for for over 20 years, and I would like to give her a shout out on your podcast, because if we're talking about women's football media, Jen is like the queen of women's football media. She kicks magazine and she's helped a lot of us along the way. So. If you ask her about stats, I think she would uh, tell you it was even worse than it is now. But it has been difficult. And, you know, it's not necessarily the club's fault. I think quite often the clubs just didn't have a resource in place. I mean, don't forget, as Chris mentioned earlier, we've only had the FA Women's Super League since 2011. It's only been professional for a year. So, you know, it, the clubs didn't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to be able to record all of this data. So from before 2011, it's almost impossible because the reality is, is that the women's game in England was amateur, certainly amateur status. So there probably weren't people recording the data that they needed. 
to be able to move it forward. So it has been difficult. It is frustrating. Molly's absolutely right. It's better than it used to be. Opta now have members of staff at most women's Super League games, if not all of them, recording data as as the game is going along. And that, that makes things a lot easier. But before Opta got involved and before the Women's Super League launched in 2011, it was almost non-existent. It depends on the country, though. I mean, if you look at the United States, for example, they are stats obsessed. So it's very, it's a lot easier to get statistics and data on anything that's relating to US soccer. So it really depends on where you are in on the league that you cover. That bit of the conversation about, you know, how, how far behind we were you know, in, in terms of gathering information and stats and and it actually meaning something and being important. Now we are starting to do that. This is the side where where journalists are, you know, really trying to make a difference and, and people are trying to make a difference to the game. And this is where it comes, you know, that, that juxtaposition, as you said, it, it goes hand in hand. You If you want people to be interested in your team, if you want people to be interested in, in the players that you watch week in, week out, you know, you you can't have it one way and not the other. Gathering stats, developing stories, you know, it, it's all part of a person's job. And I think as well, for Birmingham as well, uh, get, going back to the to the Birmingham side of it, which is which is my main focus, my main element of it, it's been really frustrating actually that people haven't been interested in Birmingham really over the last few years. You know, and I, I, it's not just me, it's, it's a lot of Birmingham fans feel we have been underappreciated in the league you know the efforts that, that we've put in the, the the way that we've played the way that we've tried to go about things over the last few years so you know you almost can't really accuse people of of being anti-Birmingham or not really taking an interest in Birmingham and then on the other hand when when things are are interesting with Blues then you know the the, the news gets reported and and people are upset about it so it goes hand in hand unfortunately and it, it's something that we've just got to come to accept. There was an interesting tweet that I saw the other day by um, an Australian cricketer, Elise Perry. Now, Elise Perry, yeah. as well as playing cricket for Australia, she also played football for Australia. She played in the 2011 World Cup. She's one of those annoying people who was good at everything when it came to sport, and she's managed to represent her country. And Elise Perry responded to that tweet saying, there are some key opportunities to continue to drive progress. For example, increased critical analysis when covering women's sport, in-depth reviews of performances and more expert stories. A lot of coverage tends to be just top-level promotion and preview review. Now, that, that really hit home, and I think that kind of backs up what you guys have been talking about on this podcast, in that in the past... Women's football coverage was very promotional. It was about trying to get the game out there. It was about encouraging people to come to the games. It was about trying to encourage people to watch games on the television. Now we're at a stage where the game is professional. There, there now needs to be more expert stories. There now needs to be more reviews and more um, critique of performances and analysis of performances because that's what the game deserves. It's more professional now. We need more stories and more analysis of what's going on on the field, whether it's Birmingham or Arsenal or, or Sheffield United in the Championship. The game's at that level now. There's more interest. And if you've got a, a high-level performer like Elise Perry saying that, then surely we as media and fans should recognise that too. In, in, in our experience, because we're so close to the, the team itself, it's often hard to be critical at the same time as keeping those relationships going. An example, um, a certain player's parent, I won't name them who they were, they blocked me on Twitter because I criticised their, their their daughter for a certain performance. So it, it's kind of hard when you're this close to a certain club, but in when you're more of a journalist who's going around different teams, I guess it's a bit easier to do that. We definitely have those relationships too. I can tell you that over the years, because I've been involved for a long time, we have those relationships with players too, but my hope is that players will recognise that it is a professional opinion and not a personal one. I got into a discussion with a player after a game recently, and I know it wasn't from me personally, but I know they was critical of that team's performance. And it's very easy for players to say, you haven't been to our games. And I'm speaking for me, and I know speaking for Kieran and Susie, particularly because I know we all have a lot of other things going on that aren't just being a journalist. And I think it's really important that, yes, 
you know, I go to a game every weekend, but I also can't be in 10 places at once. And if the desk send me to Arsenal-Chelsea, because it's Arsenal-Chelsea, don't expect me to be at Yeovil or Bristol or somewhere else, because that's where I've been sent by my employer, who is my boss, who pays my wages, and that's the content that they want. And I think we should all be allowed an opinion as experts, or even if just as fans, you should be allowed to, able to say what you think, you know, free speech. It doesn't matter that you don't go through every game. And I think that's something that not only fans need to understand, but players need to understand that as well, because it's part and parcel of a professional game. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, as you say, you can't be at the, every t- you can't be at the same team every week to see everything that's going on. And Chris, from our perspective, the, when we see a team every week, do you find it hard as a fan to criticise players that we see every week because of the closeness we have with the with the club? You, you develop a bond with those players, and you know, I've I've seen you know that the players that we've got there, it's a hell of a lot easier when we're doing well than when we're not doing well. That's obvious from from a Birmingham perspective. But I think it's difficult for us to criticise, massively criticise players of teams that we don't see every week. We only see the vast majority of players twice a season when, when we play them home and away. We've seen an awful lot of Man City over the last couple of years than than we have Yeovil, so it's easier for us to to, to make judgment and say things about Man City players than it is Yeovil players. But you know the amount of games that you can watch back on Facebook Live nowadays, and um, you know YouTube highlights and the Women's Football Show, however the limited highlights that you do get on the Women's Football Show, but they're they're available for people to watch now. So I think you can start garnering a, a, a view on these players, um, an opinion on these players, as is very apparent when when the England squads are announced and everybody's got an opinion on the England squads, etc. But like Molly said there, at the, end, at the end of the day, people like Molly, and it's difficult for Blues fans to accept and, uh, and teams like Blues, but newspapers will be interested in Chelsea v Arsenal. Newspapers will be interested in, in what Man City are doing. And, and as much as it pains us, newspapers will be interested in what's going on at Man United at the moment as well. So, um, you know, that, that's, where, that's where the interest can be from newspapers because that's where, you know, certainly Man United, the interest that they could garner, you know, the, the, the people, the, the interest that they can bring into the women's game by people being interested in what's happening at Man United is a, is a hell of a lot more than... Bristol v Yeovil in a couple of weeks' time. That's the reality of it. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, and everybody, I think, everybody's entitled to say it as well. You know, these the guys that we're having on over the next couple of days have watched a hell of a lot of women's football over the last few years. Um, so they're entitled. They're as entitled as anybody to an opinion, and I think players players definitely have to accept that the more professional you get, the more criticism you are going to get because. The levels need to be the levels need to be higher, and and if you're not pulling your weight, then people are going to tell you. Yeah, absolutely. And looking towards the future, Kieran, uh, is the prices price of success losing out on what made the women's game so appealing in the first place? Its connection with the fans on a personal level. What do you think? To some people, it will. I don't think there's any getting away from that. I think we've seen some people on social media tweeting, you know, that that they're losing interest in the game, that they're falling out of love with it. Their club may have. You know, fallen victim to to the new structure and the new mm. setup the FA have introduced. You know, if you're a fan of Sunderland or if you're a fan of Doncaster Rovers, Bells in particular, now you will feel that you've that you've lost out. You will feel that you have suffered as a result of the FA's new criteria in setting up the professional women's Super League and the semi the semi professional women's championship. And and I do a hundred percent sympathise with those fans. And and I. You know, for for myself, you know, I I you're was, a Watford fan, aren't you, Kieran? Exactly. So you you've gone through it as well. Exactly. I worked at one of the things that I didn't mention when we were talking about the things that I've done in the past is that I spent a year volunteering for Watford Ladies in the 2012-2013 season. We finished second in what was the National Premier League then, so it was the division below the Women's Super League, second behind Sunderland. Sunderland were absolutely superb that year. They had a young. 17-year-old by the name of Beth Mead, absolutely tearing up that division. And she's gone on to do amazing things with Arsenal in England. We finished second behind them. I worked with the staff on our Women's Super League application when we went into WSL2. 
and now the club is languishing in the Premier League South or the National the National League South as it's now known. Now that that for me was that hurt a lot, you know, as a fan. That that was something that I didn't want to see. Uh, but ultimately, I, I've paid the price like other fans have as well. But you know, that I know that Watford are are looking at potentially. You know, in, I don't know if they're going to invest more money or resource, but you know, they they've fallen away. And five years ago, we finished second in the, in the second tier of English football. We had a really good squad. So I've seen it myself, so I can sympathise with fans. And you're absolutely right. This, the cost of success for the women's game will see some people potentially leave the game. It will potentially see some clubs fall away. But I, I guess this is where fans have, have got to figure out what they want. We've been asking for more professionalism. We've been asking for more media coverage. We've now got that. But what comes with that is pressure on clubs financially. What comes with that is... Some people realising that it's starting to mirror in some ways the men's game, which is one of the reasons they follow the women's game is because they're fed up of the men's game. So we are going to see some people fall away. And, and I completely sympathise because I've seen what my club has gone through uh, and, it, and it's not pleasant. Over to you, Bolly. Um, what do you think the future holds for media itself? Um, how do you think it's going to change over the next five or ten years in terms of how it covers women's football? I think at the moment it's very... It is still in the balance, I think. I know we've moved to a professional league, but as I was saying on Twitter the other day, and some people may or may not have seen, personally for me, I don't think it's financially viable to finish my degree and go into women's football full-time, which is a shame because I will have to go back to men's football too in order to make a living. And that's that's just the stage where the game is at at the moment. I know, you know, obviously Katie's got the full-time position at the Telegraph, but... There aren't a lot of media organisations that are prepared to, you know, really stick their neck out and and offer that kind of thing. And I think, you know, the World Cup could be a really, really big turning point because I know when I watched the 2015 one, it was it's like it captured the attention of people that had never, never cared, never seen the game before. And if we can go deep into that tournament added into the fact that now the the coach of the national team is Phil Neville. Of course, you know, I know that was a controversial appointment and some people think, you know, he's absolutely awful. I won't mention any names, Chris. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But other people, um, you know, you can't can't argue with the fact that he has brought in people that probably didn't care less about women's, women's football. Whether they're the right people or the wrong people for the game, you know, it is what it is. But it's certainly increased exposure. And I think if England can go far in the World Cup, which 100% all of us would love to see, whether you're a fan, whether you're part of the media or whatever it is, if they can really go far in the tournament, I think that, that could make a massive difference to my future. You know, That could make a massive difference to the game, the way the game is. And I think you know, I've been saying I'm not going to kind of make a massive life decision on a job until after the World Cup. Because I genuinely think that's how important that tournament could be. For me, for the game, for the fans, for everything. It could be such a big turning point, but at the same time, it could also be an absolute damp squid. And we could still be in this position with a league that's not really sure what it's doing and a national team that's kind of gone backwards. And then we have to start all over again. So I think if we can capture that, that audience that will be watching the World Cup, because now we're lucky enough to have a lot of media organisations covering that, if we can capture that audience and the players can play well and the manager can manage well, then I think that's a huge, huge step for the women's game. I think we could go on and see full-time positions for women's reporters. And if you have full-time positions, then yes, of course, as we say, the media landscape will change. There will be more breaking stories. But we'll also have more time to devote to you know, going to every club and really getting that coverage there because... You know, at the end of the day, I'm part-time and I have other things to do, as do nearly everyone that covers the game. And if we had that full-time chance, I think, of course, coverage would coverage would be better. I think that maybe would go to some extent of kind of pacifying the fans that aren't too keen on where it's going if there was more positive coverage of all the clubs, I guess. Question to, to both Kieran and Molly. Say we have a really... We get to the... Say we win it. Say we win the World Cup this summer. I remember when we finished third in in the 2015 World Cup 
and there was a surge in attendances four or five-fold the normal attendance sizes for a couple of months, and then it went back to normal. Um, say we win the, the World Cup, but you've still got... Obviously, I'm fully expecting Man United to be in the top division next season, but you'll still have Birmingham versus Everton, and you'll still have Bristol versus Brighton, for example. Will you really see 5,000 regularly at every game? Or, as, as you said, Molly, and my big fear for the women's game, does it need a Premier League Mark II and every Premier League side to be in, in the top tier of women's football for, for the interest and attendances to really be where the FA want them to be? I think it is a very difficult decision. I think... Very well, we could be sat here in half a year's time and it could be a decision that's made after the World Cup. It feels like the game's at a point where something needs to change because at the minute, we're either pacifying the people that have been at the game for years and years and they're losing mm. interest, but we aren't moving forward enough to, to bring in those new people that, you know, if you want to be getting 5,000 or whatever at a game. Something will probably change if that's the Premier League taking over. I wouldn't be totally against it. But I think the, whatever option you do, problems come with it. And, you know, it, it's like when Manchester United joined. People were never going to be happy. Of course, 100% the FA could have handled it better in lots and lots and lots of ways. You know, the things that have happened to Sunderland, to Jolly Bell, Sheffield, you know, a lot of it does come down to finances. and. Until that changes, I don't think anything else will change because until you can get better players, until you can be trained better, I mean, we were talking the other day on the BT podcast about the fact that, you know, your goalkeepers of the past probably never even had goalkeeper training because there was no money for that. So imagine how good players could be if there was more money and there was more training because people that say women's football is rubbish, the quality of the game is rubbish. That's because it's operating at such a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the cost compared to the men's game. If you started chucking millions and millions of pounds at the women's game, imagine what it would be like. Now, I'm not saying mm. millions and millions, a couple of hundred pounds and wouldn't go amiss, you know? Especially for some of the smaller clubs. Um, if, if that does mean that you have to have some kind of thing where the men's team have to um, kind of be within that, if it's some kind of criteria lose the, the teams like Yeovil and you lose them because their men's team can't ever compete with the, the um, infrastructure and the funds that someone like Manchester City men's team could be like the women's team. Yeah, this podcast would go, yeah. So it's, it's yeah, I don't, I don't think there is a solution or an easy answer, but win the World Cup and we'll be in a better place, won't we, really? <laughs> Going back to Kieran then, Kieran, I believe we were talking about the issue of streaming and how it, it might affect uh, domestic crowds possibly, but it's also a good idea to get international viewers and get more uh, interest in the league as the similar way that the NWSL games in the North America are shown over here for everyone to view online. There's a, there's a catch-22 here, as I said. The FA have put a challenge to clubs to get a certain number of people through the turnstiles at every ground. But the problem those clubs face is they will have that number that they have in mind of who they might be able to get through. And then they will find out that their game is being streamed on Facebook or might be featured on BBC or might even be lucky enough to be on BT Sport. The difficulty that they have, obviously, is they're looking to reach out into the local community. The local community are the people that are going to be going through the turnstiles like you guys. The people that benefit from streams and from live coverage are those that are maybe outside of the local area. And then when it comes to the Facebook streams, which aren't geo-blocked, the, you know, they are open to anyone in the world. I know that there is you know, a few Americans, a few American colleagues of mine watch the Facebook streams uh, for the WSL matches. The problem that you've got is when you have games being streamed and broadcast, it's easier for people to sit at home and watch because they can get access to more games. As I said, you know, as a as someone who's had quite a lot of work on and has been working on a project, it's easier for me to sit at home and I might be able to watch three WSL games in an afternoon, a game on BBC Online, a game on Facebook and a game on BT Sport if we're lucky. So I've been able to watch three games as opposed to going to one match in person and only being able to see that one game. The problem with the NWSL 
or the advantage that the NWSL has got is that it's so spread out. There's only nine teams. It's a massive country. So unless you live in the market where you have an organization, then you are going to get people who are, are going to tune in. And what I will say about American audiences as well is they have a particular interest in individual players as well. So, for example, Alex Morgan is probably the most followed player in the world on social media, something like three and a half million followers on Twitter. You don't have to be an Orlando Pride supporter to watch Orlando Pride games because there are a lot of people that will support Alex Morgan. There are a lot of people that will support Ashlyn Harris. There'll be a lot of people that support Megan Rapino over in Seattle. Over here, we're more about the team. In the United States, there are definitely people that are more about the individual. So about in terms of trying to grow that reach, different in the United States than it is over here, but it is mass, it's a massive challenge over here. You know, I feel for the clubs because the broadcasters are reluctant to put games on mainstream television because they're worried about the perception of an empty stadium. But without without people being in the stadium, we won't get that coverage. And without people, you know, without if we don't have streams and we don't have broadcasts, we'll get more people in the stadium. But without the broadcast, we don't get that bigger reach. So it, it, it is difficult on both sides. That's a great place to end, I think. So thank you very much to Molly Hudson for joining us, Kieran Tatham, Chris Pugh, of course. And remember to tune in next time where we have the FA Cup 2012 special. And then the week after, we're going to have two more journalists on to talk about their role in the media. And that was the Great Sense 68 podcast. To listen to future shows or listen back to our previous ones, go to iTunes. Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast platform you may use. And search for Great Since 68 and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and remember, keep right on. Keep right on!